We're a long way from Isaiah 40, where the corner turns on God's oracles of judgment generally, and it moves to God's word of comfort. But just a little bit of Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or has, as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught with him, with him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket." and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon, all the forests of Lebanon, is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, the craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions it, uh, fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared for, to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I, I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. The one who lead, leads forth the star's host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. No one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due to me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? 
Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not weary. They will walk and not be faint. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. It's a lot of hard work to get from Isaiah chapter 18 to Isaiah chapter 40, and sometimes you have to cheat and you have to read and have dessert. Uh, but we're going to do this work tonight as we study God's oracle from Isaiah in chapter 18 against Cush, Ethiopia, related to Egypt. And we're going to need the Spirit of God to equip us for this great work. It is God's Spirit who inspired Isaiah to write what he wrote, these oracles of God's revelation and the historical circumstance in which he wrote them. And it is God's Spirit who lives in you to help you and me, help us understand and live out the things we're going to study tonight. Let's seek his work as we take a moment for silent prayer. I always afford you the opportunity. What we say is, as believers in Jesus Christ, forgiven of our sins, we need to avail ourselves of the grace of God regarding fellowship. Personal fellowship with God is broken through personal sin, and the defilement of personal sin is cleansed for the believer when and if we confess our sins, according to 1 John 1, 9. So I always afford you that moment of silent prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the reminder that your scriptures provide to us that anytime we open them and hear from what you've given us in special revelation, you are telling us that you love us because you're revealing yourself to us. Thank you for the nature, this nature of the scriptures that we come to know you and receive your love and so love you in return. It is the wonderful calling to which all human beings have been called and it is our design and by your grace, Father. By your saving work, we are made fit, capable of worshiping you, loving you in truth, in the spirit and truth. Father, let us do that tonight. We want this reading of your word to be the worship that recognizes the God who has saved us in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 18 is in the middle of Isaiah chapters 12 or 13 through 23. Isaiah 13 through 23, calling it the book of the nations, as you know. And so he goes through systematically and gives, and, and this is a folio of historical prophecies that God gave Isaiah in the span of several decades of his ministry. And one of the takeaways from the fact that God is speaking through the prophet in Judah in the southern kingdom of Israel regarding God's special revelation about what's going to happen with these other nations, it reminds us that God is the God of creation. He's the God who made everything, and he's the God who made everyone. And everyone that he made is made in his image. Every human being is an image bearer, and he has a design and a desire and purpose for each and every one of us. And this is interesting that God, the God who is the God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God who is desiring that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So he does have a message, a universal or an international message to all the nations. But here's the problem with the nations. Human beings think we are good in ourselves 
and we separate ourselves from God who requires us to come to him broken and owning our need and trusting in him. And since we don't want to go through that uncomfortable experience and our love of sin and darkness, we say no to God and to the light and we roll over in our covers and we try to sleep it off a little longer away from the reality of the God with whom we must deal. And as we, as human beings fight him, we find our needs are not being met and we need to worship. We need something other. We need the transcendental. We need a special target or repository for our devotion, for our spiritual uh, sense of eternity. And what man does, as we just read in Isaiah 40, is we make something out of God's natural environment that he made and holds together. We take some of his creation and we worship it in opposition to him who made it and has blessed us and loves us. And so that's the context for the entirety of the Bible and indeed our lives in the time in which we live here in the 21st century. And so not a whole lot has changed today versus back then. Uh, We're getting reruns today. There's the resurgence of paganism and uh, transcendental uh, spirituality and spiritism and all these things that have been going on since the Tower of Babel. Um, It's very popular now in post-Christian America to embrace anything spiritual as long as it has absolutely nothing to do with the conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding our need and the Son of God who came to die for our sins and, and so there's a lot that speaks in God's oracles against the nations that, that directly talks to us. And interestingly, tonight we're looking in Isaiah chapter 18, God's oracle to Ethiopia. And it's hard to find in chapter 18 an oracle against Ethiopia. There is a message, there is a rejection God offers, but it's a rejection of their request for support militarily to Judah. But it isn't an oracle of judgment for their idolatry. We're going to hear in chapter 19 and 20 more about Egypt and Ethiopia, which are closely intertwined in this phase of history. And we're going to hear about judgments that God has on the idolatry, especially of Egypt. But this one isn't an oracle primarily of judgment. It's a rejection of human solutions to problems that only God can solve. The problem uh, of the people in the ancient Near East is on the screen up up above you right there. That map with all those many colors, that is the Assyrian Empire beginning in the 1300s BC in the core in the purple part. That's what this little map um, thing tells me. We started in the 1350s or whatever here. I can't read it. You probably can't either. It's too small. But anyway, that's what it says, and it, and it, it radiates out. These are the, the um, Eastern Semite peoples that were empire builders. Babylonians are the same way. The Chaldeans are Chasdim, um, and, and they're these people that would build their empires between these two rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates. And so much of Old Testament history is dealing with these people. In this case, it's the Assyrians. Just for example, the book of Jonah is like a play, and it's, it's great. It's phenomenal. There are a couple of miracles in Jonah, but what is the book of Jonah? It is a satire, a divinely inspired satire, portraying a man that should know God because he's a prophet of God, but he doesn't really have the heart of God. And the context in which you learn about Jonah and self-righteousness and Phariseeism before there were any Pharisees. 
and the rejection of forgiveness and not embracing God's love for others back in whatever, the 700s or 600s BC, whenever we don't know when Jonah was written, it doesn't say. But, but Jonah is supposed to go as the prophet of God of Israel. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. And the context of the Jonah thing where he's unforgiving and not desiring that they would come to, to worship Yahweh and so be saved, the context for this is that the Assyrians are the bad guys of the Old Testament. They're the people that we would roundly condemn for their torture of their captives, for their gobbling up territory, for their destruction of the innocents where they do conquer. They are the bad guys. And what do you take away from this? Well, this is a military force that can do all of this. And little old Judah is over here with no military to speak of at this point in their history. No real hope, no real chance of fighting against the Assyrians as we've seen again and again because that's the historical context. Now, it's so bad, the Assyrians are so bad that they're overtaking over the Western people west of Israel in Egypt, south and west on the African continent of Egypt. And the Egyptians are closely associated in this phase of history with the people of Cush, the Cushites, which we uh, have in the Septuagint in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Ethiopians. And so one of the ancient world identifiers for this people is Ethiopian so it's the people of Sudan and, and the African uh, sub-Egyptian portion of the continent of, of Africa where you have these, the, these empire builders that are called Cush or the Ethiopians. And this is a picture I, I scrubbed off of um, Wikipedia from a guy that put this together from the National Geographic article on the, uh, the uh, African pharaohs in uh, the 740s to the 650s BC. And you can check that out in 2019 in National Geographic. I have to attribute when I grab something like this. But um, this is a picture of the same thing, but this is Egypt here, uh, where you see the little fork of the Nile River, all these little uh, delta um, pieces of the, the Nile in this giant river. And then the heartland of the Kushite Empire is here with Nabata. And uh, I can't read this city either, but, but this is down here south. And you can see, for example, how rivers are, are crossing this territory. This, this land is also crossed by rivers. And on the sides around, there's a lot of desert, at least today and likely back then as well. But where you have rivers, you can have flourishing and thriving and the, the Nile fed the Egyptian empire. Well, this is an interesting part of history. The pharaohs from 745 or so till about 656 or 665, somewhere in there, in the time in which Isaiah wrote, the pharaohs might well have been African. And, and, and I don't mean Egyptian, I mean Cushite. They might have been from this empire where the vigorous Shabaka and others came and conquered and took over Egypt. And there was a season of Egyptian pharaohs that were Cushite. They were Ethiopian. And that's very fascinating history. There are pyramids and tombs down in here in Nabata in these places that look like something like what we see in the Valley of the Kings up in Egypt. And so, so th this is some history we don't talk about very much, but these people in Sudan, which are a different lineage, a different family than, than the Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, they conquered the Egyptians and set their king as Pharaoh. And now you have tombs and carvings and, and uh, Egyptian monuments to these kings. 
And uh, so it, it may, it is that in this phase of history, now it's hard to put the Egyptian calendar the way they report time together with what the Jews say, and there's a bunch of controversy. Non-believing scholars always go with the Egyptians and then say, well, we can't believe the Bible. But my suspicion is that it probably works up the other way. That's, pretty, that's some, some, some biblical Christian sarcasm for you. It's certainly that the unbelieving calendar is broken. Um, but the point I'm making here is that there's a close connection between the Egyptians and Cush. And I also want you to see on this map here that this is far south. These people are down here. So they're, they're looking at the coming storm of the Assyrians. They haven't been uh, swept under in the heartland yet, but it's coming. And so this explains partly what's going on in this little seven-verse oracle that God sent Isaiah to preach at some point or write down. In your Bible, it says in verse one, alas, O land of the whirring wings, the whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. Let me just read it. Seven verses is not very long. Which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels, papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. See, that's Cush. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, now that's everybody. As soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you'll see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you'll hear it. God's going to do something and everyone's going to know about it is the point. For thus the Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest, the toughest verse to interpret in the whole thing. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he, that's God, will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives or remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth and the birds of prey will spend their summer feeding on them and the beasts of the earth will spend their harvest time on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. In all the poetry that I've read from Isaiah, when I read this and think about this and reflect on what he's doing poetically and lyrically, and I think I understand what it's talking about, though this is a challenging one. This sounds a whole lot like the kind of poetry and prophecy you read in Tolkien. It sounds a whole lot like the Lord of the Rings stuff, the way there's a hint of, of mystery in what he says. There's more imagery than concrete. And it all is going to take place, but it's hard to assess how it's going to work. But it is beautiful. In the land of mortar where the shadows lie is how some of the poetry in the Lord of, Ring, uh, the, Lord of the Rings ends. Notice what, what just jumps out at you when you read it in English. He says, when he talks about these Cushites, he says, a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation in verse 2. He, he says the same thing in verse 7. He calls them exactly the same thing like it's, a, like it's a refrain in a song, like it's a chorus where you say the same thing again and you repeat yourself and you're redundant. All right, let's do it in detail. He says, whoa, somebody's dead, hoy, in Hebrew. This word woe, which is translated, unfortunately, in my Bible, alas, means that there is a funeral dirge. Somebody is in trouble. Woe to the land of Silsal is what it says in Hebrew. And I don't think that you need to know that, but I think it's kind of interesting, so I'll share it with you. Silsal translated whirring, whirring. What is that word whirring? Well, it's a sound that 
insects wings make, whirring wing, whirring. And so in English, we have what's called an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like the thing that it's describing, like knock or pat. These are words that are words, but they, they replicate the sound of what it does. Whirring is like that. So is silsaw. Silsaw is probably referencing the flies that inhabit the Nile Delta and further south. If you go down there, we're told there's a lot of flies and you would say, I get what he means about the land of whirring wings. Another theory is that it refers to the way their boats were built and it looks like uh, insect wings on the boats. But I think it's probably you're in a, a place full of flies in the Nile, in the southern reaches of the Nile. And this land lies beyond the rivers of Cush, so further south where apparently the historical background is, this is what all the scholars will say, that these people are nervous about the Assyrians, and so they're looking to the people further up that are buffers, like the people in Israel, and they're asking them, you want to make an alliance? You want to get together with Syria? You want to get together with the northern kingdom? Can we not make a military uh, force that'll stave off the coming Assyrians? And we've read about this a lot. God isn't going to do it through military alliances. God does it direct single combat as the angel of the Lord, as we read in Isaiah 37. The angel of the Lord takes care of the army of Assyria in one evening. And that's the historical outcome that he's going to be talking about again, as we saw at the end of chapter uh, 17. In chapter 17, woe, verse 12, woe, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The picture is that your house is about to be overcome because the dam broke and millions of gallons of water about to blow through there. That's what the Assyrian army is being portrayed as. They conquered all the nations that they, in their path. In verse 13, the nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whir, whir, uh, whirling dust before a gale. We know this is the God of Israel who established them as a nation by his work of great redemption at the Red Sea. He's good at stopping the water in its tracks and saving his people by doing so. So when the nations are portrayed as the mighty rushing waters and God shows up and says, "Ah," it's really a stark contrast. The infinite power of Almighty God against all that the nations can throw against his people. That's the picture. In verse 14 of chapter 17, at evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, there no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and a lot of those who pillage us. This is a reference, a prophetic reference to what God is going to do to Assyria, which answers the question of the Ethiopian envoys. We want to form a military alliance because we can only deal with the things that we know, like they've got a big army and they're going to come eat us. We have a smaller army, but you've got a few thousand. We get a few thousand going with the, with the Aram, the Syrians, we get a few thousand more with the northern kingdom. I mean, we should be able to to do something that stops us from getting down to Nabata in our heartland. I think that's generally, what, that, that's generally what we believe is happening in this oracle. This people, woe to them who send by sea envoys and in vessels of papyrus upon the face of the water. So they've, so they've got this papyrus boat thing that they do, which is very maneuverable and fast, and they can make these swift trips. So the email goes a little faster back then with the papyrus boats. Of course, it's not email. It's, um, it's not even dial-up. I mean, this is, this is uh, three months for a letter response back in those days, okay? 
Go, swift messengers to a nation tall and shaven. Now you read in your Bible smooth, but it doesn't say smooth. We have Hebrew words for smooth. This word means the hair has been pulled out or there is no hair or the hair has been shaven. And this is what historians and archaeologists have come up with, that the, the people of Cush are known for being super tall, being not, not like Goliath tall, but they're tall, a tall people, and it was their cultural practice, like the Egyptians, to shave. That's a thing going on in the northern African portion of the northern African continent with the various cultures, is they shave a lot. Remember Joseph, to go before Pharaoh, he has to shave off his Hebrew beard and show up like an Egyptian before Pharaoh. When his brothers show up a few years later, they don't recognize Egyptian Joseph. They, 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 they're, they're a bunch of hairy Hebrews. And so there's cultural differences, but this is the description of the Cushites, that they are a nation, tall and shaven, a people feared far and wide, a nation, Kav Kav. What? Well, it just says it. It's right here, Kav Kav. And there's a, an interesting conversation going on. Uh, now, you're not supposed to talk about this in church. You're supposed to just read it out of the Bible, just mean strong, but, but I'm going to tell you that this is an interesting thing. It's another onomatopoeia. And it either means that they sound foreign to us the way they talk. They're all cough, 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 cough when they're talking. That's probably what's going on. Another theory is that it means doubled strength. But they're foreigners and they are exotic, definitely, by the way this is described. A nation cough, cough, or are babbling or strong and trampling. These people are vigorous of whom they despise or divide. That's a, that's a dispute as well. We'll say divide or wash away the rivers of his land. These, the, the rivers are washing away the land where these people are, or it divides them. So the description of the Cushites. And then he expands it to the earth dwellers because God who made everybody is going to deal with Cush. He's going to deal with Assyria. He's going to deal with everybody. So everybody benefits from this, even we, the United States, the Gentile nation that we are. All who reside in the earth and dwellers of the earth. I want to pause here because the Masoretes told me to. They put a little pausal accent there. And so that's where the carriage return happens. And it's a time to think about what he's talking about. All the earth dwellers, the residents of the whole earth are now the audience, are now the people he's talking to. This is an interesting phrase that the, that the apostle John will pick up and refer to the people for whom God's wrath is poured out in the coming tribulation. Tribulation period of Revelation chapter 6 through 19 will often refer to the earth dwellers. And we believe, after reviewing how this is used in the New and the Old Testaments, this is generally the people for whom God's wrath is reserved. Always unbelievers, always people opposed to him. So this is an oracle that is coming down. God's wrath is coming down for all, okay, in context. And we've expanded out from just the, the Cushites. All who reside in the world and dwellers of the earth, at the rising of the standard in the mountains you will see. At the blowing of the shofar, your Bible might say trumpet, but it's a shofar, it's a ram's horn. The blowing of the shofar, you will hear. When you hear, you will know. And this is a picture that the whole world is going to sort of be uh, on front row seats at the arena when God does what he's going to do to Assyria. You sent your envoys asking for a military alliance, send them back and say, Yahweh's got this. That's the message of the oracle. When you see what happens, you'll know. For thus the Lord said to me, says Isaiah, I will be at rest 
And I will regard, that means to look at, Nava, I will look at and regard in my place when the heat is shimmering upon the light, when a cloud of dew is in the heat of harvest. I think the key to interpreting verse 4 is understanding these, these letters to mean when, not like, which is certainly allowed and what I think Isaiah is doing. There's going to be a time when it's still warm, but it's harvest. And so scholars go back and forth on whether it's fall or summer. It's the time of the harvest, and so the answer is yes. When do you harvest the crops? When they're ripe, at harvest time, and that's about the same time every year, and it is that kind of break point between summer and fall. It's in that we're there. Hey, how appropriate. We've been saying about the seasons tonight, summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Well, this, there's a lot of verbiage in here to say when God is going to do what, he's, what he does. I'll, it'll be a time when God's at rest from his place. He'll be looking. And it's when the heat is shimmering upon the light. Some will translate that the sun. So the sun is still out when a cloud of dew is in the heat of harvest. So we've gone from hot sun time to sun that with some showers like the fall rains. And so I believe that's what he's talking about. It's in that phase of the year when it's time for harvest. But notice all the poetry. It's all poetry for Isaiah. He's a poet and we have to deal with it. And that's how God inspired it. But he's talking about in the season of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud blossoms, so we don't have reaping time. It's before that. It's premature, before the harvest. And the ripening, unripe fruit will be flowering, literally. I've got, others, I've got actual scholars that would say that's a good translation. The ripening, that's the verb. Unripe fruit, that's a noun, will be flowering. Then he will cut off the zalzalim with a vine dresser's knife. So it's not quite harvest time, perhaps in the country, but God's going to come out and bring a harvest. So he uses this extended agricultural metaphor, this image of harvest, which is the cutting of things down and the removing of things undesired. And so it seems to be that he's going to do it before you might have expected, like prematurely. I believe this is what we have again in Isaiah chapters 37, 38, when there's this intense time of prayer. There's all this preparation. We don't know what we're going to do. You can, you can hear the drumbeat increasing in its, in its speed in the screenplay of Hezekiah's uh, anxiety. And then all of a sudden there's no more drums. He wakes up the next morning and the battlefield is littered with dead Assyrians and uh, nobody's there to claim it because God did it. And that's what Isaiah tells us. He will cut off the zazalim. You're like, what is a zazalim? Well, it's like kav kav. It's another sound uh, word that maybe we're all divided on what, what's the point here. It's kind of a rare term, but it means shoots. And um, you've got these little curly sprigs that come off of grapevines, and, and those, are, those are zazalim. I don't know if they, when you cut the big vine off and they shake, it makes a shake sound like zazalza. I don't know. But that's kind of a little bit of Hebrew flavor. And he will cut off these shoots with a vine dresser's knife, and the tendrils he'll remove, he'll tear away. So prematurely, before you expect it, perhaps in the season of harvest or right before harvest, God is going to bring a harvest. And it refers to the Assyrians. So here, here, trace with me the message. We had Ethiopian envoys come and say, let's get together and make you a buffer state to save us from the coming Assyrians. And the, the God of the people being asked says, I have a message for your people. Send your messengers back that Yahweh is God in Israel. And I'm going to save my people in a time that I choose when I see fit. 
Then he will be, then, then, I'm sorry, they will be abandoned together for the mountain bird of prey and for the beast of the earth. And so this is uh, a portrait, not anymore of the agriculture, but of the land, that there's nobody to inhabit it or to cultivate their land. It now becomes a, a common trope in Hebrew pro- prophets is that the desolate place becomes uh, the inhabitant, uh, the, the habitation of scavenger animals. So that's what you have here, the mountain bird of prey and the beast of the earth, the behemoth. It will spend the summer there, the bird of prey, and every beast of the earth there will spend winter. So the place where these mighty warriors are coming from becomes a desolation because they have been removed. It reminds me perhaps of what happened in World War I with the Kitchener Brigades um, in Great Britain. One of the great problems of the decline of the, of the great na- national vigor and power of Great Britain was World War I. And we didn't experience as a nation what they experienced. Much like in World War II, we didn't experience what Russia experienced. We didn't have nearly the death, the death toll or the consequence on our culture or our generations of young men that England had in World War I and II or Russia in World War II. What I'm saying is the Kitchener Brigades were this interesting thing, you know, kind of sounds like Nehemiah 4. What you do is every town recruits a, a, a group of, of young men to fight. And they'll fight with their town. So whole towns were wiped out. When that, when that platoon got wiped out, all the guys in the neighborhood were dead. So it, it killed whole towns in Great Britain. And that seems to be the kind of desolation that we're talking about here. And this is what you expect in military affairs. It's a horrible thing. It's an absolutely horrible thing to have to go to war. But it's much worse to have war come to you. It's a much worse thing as we've seen again and again in Isaiah even. So this is the consequence of, of God's decimation of the Assyrians. And this is, uh, therefore, a word of encouragement to Shabaka or whoever the, the, um, the ruling um, Cushite king is at this time. At that time will be brought a gift of tribute for Yahweh of the armies. I've translated Yahweh. Sabaoth as the Lord Yahweh of the armies, one of his designations throughout Isaiah. Whenever he shows up in his uniform and does a military thing like destroy 185,000 Assyrians, he's Yahweh Sabaoth. He's the God of the, the Lord of hosts or the armies. At that time will be brought a gift of tribute for the Lord of the armies. And this is a, an interesting thing. At what time? Ba'et hahu, hahi, at that time. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean the time in which this warfare takes place at the time that I'm speaking of, that I'm thinking of, and I think this is far distant into the future. At that time that we've all been looking for ever since Isaiah chapter 2, a gift of tribute for the Lord of the armies will be brought by a people tall and shaven, people from a, fear, from a people feared far and wide, a nation of strength or babbling with a foreign language and trampling whose land the rivers divide. So before, it's send a message to these vigorous people that God isn't going to use them to defeat the Assyrians. I got it. I've got a plan. I've got a way I'm going to resolve this, and you're not invited. So you send a message with your human viewpoint solution to the Assyrian crisis, and God doesn't accept that solution. He's going to work a miracle. But he is going to accept tribute from them, and that will be their glory. That will be their 
privilege. That is their eternal privilege as the nation that they are to come and bring tribute to Yahweh in Jerusalem. These tall and shaven people from a people, uh, a people feared far and wide, a nation of strength and trampling whose land the rivers divide. And where they'll come? The place of the name of the Lord of the armies to Mount Zion. So he goes from, I reject your invitation. My people are not going to join an alliance with you or Egypt or anyone else or the northern kingdom or the, or the Syrians. And if I don't show up, they're just going to die. They're going to be destroyed and they're going to be tortured to death as the Assyrians would do. But what happens is God shows up and there is no military alliance that does it. There's no explanation in secular history for how the Assyrian empire no longer could conquer and, and was stopped in its tracks. But the Bible tells us, we have biblical history that tells us what happened. I would remind you very briefly, one of the great feats, the, perhaps the, not perhaps, the greatest military feat in world history, the award or the, uh, the world record for single combat is in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, and his son, became king in his place. And this breaks the back of the military might of the Assyrians, 185,000 soldiers killed by one soldier that you don't ever want to meet on the battlefield, apparently. All right, one of the great things about this particular little, little oracle is it shows God's great power, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, and his plan. He's Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the armies. He's the wonderful counselor, meaning military strategist. He has a plan, and we don't know what it is. And uh, sometimes we have our ideas of how we'd like it to go, but he says, no, I've got an outcome that I want to happen, and I'm going to bring it about in my way. And this is the hard thing for us. We can see the outcome that we want. God told us what the outcome should be. And we want to get there as quickly as we can. And he says, hold on a second. I'm going to be at peace at harvest time, doing what I'm doing. And right before you would think there's a harvest, I'm going to show up and do a massive harvest. I'm going to do it my way in my time and you have to wait. That's a lot of times the answer to our urgent specific requests, which why? In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, you bring your request with thanksgiving because you need God to strengthen your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A couple of places that this idea of these Gentiles, otherwise pagans, would come to worship Yahweh in Zion. In this case, what is he doing? They're bringing a tribute like you bring to a king. They're bringing a kingly tribute like the wise men in Matthew, men of uh, the, the, the Magi from the east come and bring the gifts fit for a king because they come to worship the king of Israel, fulfilling in a, in a foretaste what Isaiah 2 says. If you look at Isaiah 2 very briefly, he says, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the, that's, that's the kingdom language, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be established at the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it. All the goyim, 
That's what that says in Hebrew. All the nations, all the Gentiles that right now are enraging against God, there's coming a time when they will all go in, in submission, gladly singing God's praises to Jerusalem, the Jewish headquarters of the worldwide government of King Jesus, of the Messiah. Many people will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. See, the future coming kingdom of Jesus is international, it's worldwide, but it isn't the cancellation of national identities. These are nations as nations coming to worship. You hear it? National, the principle of the nation is not something man has invented, something God did at, at Babel, and it continues through the kingdom, at least for the first thousand years. Listen to what happens when he judges between nations and renders a decision for many peoples. They'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. We all want this. Everybody that's ever looked into the horror of violence where one man must, as his duty, kill another man, understands it for the great nightmare that it is. In our culture today, we're more and more desensitized to it. The kids are, you know, racking up the body count on the first-person shooter games and all that and all that and all that. But the truth is that this is a great horror that's part of the world we live in, this side of the fall. And what happens when Jesus rules from Mount Zion, when Yahweh is sitting on his throne in Mount Zion, you have world peace. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then become, begins an oracle of judgment. Just one place. If you want to spend a couple more minutes with me, if we go to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 mentions Egypt and Cush, mentions the Ethiopians in much the same way we just read. And it's for people like Jonah that don't want the Gentiles to know and don't want God to be forgiving of the idolaters or whatever, the self-righteous strain that somehow infects us despite the fact that we have a relationship with God. Uh, Psalm 68 has a challenging, sobering message for us. I don't have a preparation of the entire thing, but just looking at, at around verse um, 28, your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God. You have acted on our behalf because of your temple at Jerusalem. This is Psalm 68, 29. Kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts and the reeds, the herd of the boil of the bulls with the calves and the, of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. That's a song we need to work up, isn't it? The Gentile nations coming to Jerusalem. It's this image, it's this picture that we get in the poetic oracles of, of revealed prophecy peppered through the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 14, very interesting concluding message in Zechariah. Looking at, let's see, in verse 9, 
The Lord will be king over all the earth. You're like, where's Zechariah? Well, it's about right there toward the end of the Old Testament. The Lord will be king over the earth or all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, his name, the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on the site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. George Lucas and... Um, um, Steven Spielberg tried to do this in 1981. Their flesh will rot while they st- in, in a movie that they made. Their flesh will, it had Harrison Ford. Okay, anyway. Um, their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord, it was Indiana Jones, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? It will come about, that's not good to mention movies while reading the Bible. It came about, it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague of the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that be in those camps. And then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year after Israel wins because Messiah shows up and wins the war. They will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the feasts of tabernacles. It will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Mitzrayim, Egypt, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. Those of you who understand agriculture, well, that's bad. That means there's no food. And you can say, well, but we don't want to eat vegetables. We want to eat beef. Well, they eat vegetables. And so there's no food if there's no rain. I hope you all understand we're solar powered. If the family of Egypt doesn't go up, there will be no rain on them. It will be the plague which, with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to the, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This isn't just figurative, poetic language saying that all the nations are basically going to believe in Jesus. This is saying that there's a coming international kingdom with a geographic headquarters in Jerusalem, in Israel, the land that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how does the New Testament begin? How does God's work in the church begin? It begins in Jerusalem. Extends to Judea, to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And as you read, and that's the book of Acts. And as you read the book of Acts and you get to the, the church spreading out. It spreads out because there is a, a great persecution against Christians. Some are thrown in prison like Peter. Others, one other, the first, is stoned to death, and that's the consequence, that's the end of chapter 7 of Acts. Happens in Jerusalem, Stephen, great deacon, empowered by the Spirit of God to speak the truth of God, prophetically summarizing God's entire dealings with national Israel and the rejection of the Messiah is stoned to death for proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection. 
Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father as heaven is opened up for Stephen to see that he's going to be received in glory momentarily. And he falls asleep, it says, as Saul of Tarsus is holding the robes of those men that stoned Stephen to death, these murderers. Saul of Tarsus then becomes the, the chief persecutor of this fledgling group of believers who are now scattering to get away from this persecution. And they go to a nearby city called Damascus. And that's a story of Saul of Tarsus going to Damascus and meeting the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 9. But before we see Saul, the great persecutor of the church, become the great promoter of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have Acts chapter 8. And isn't it interesting that the treasurer, likely a, a man of the treasury for the queen in Ethiopia, is the Gentile who is up for the Feast of Tabernacles, who is hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way he hears it is he's already reading, likely diaspora Jewish Ethiopian, likely a member of the Jewish diaspora from Ethiopia. And he's reading the Hebrew scrolls in Isaiah 53, and he doesn't know what it refers to. And Philip is brought by a supernatural work of God to the presence of this eunuch right at the right moment. And you know the story. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? The Ethiopian eunuch has some fantastic questions. Like, there's water over there. What prevents me from being baptized after the conversation? But this is the first Gentile convert in Acts. This is the nations coming to hear the gospel. And it does not exhaust all that we've read in the Old Testament about the nations in the coming kingdom of Jesus streaming to Jerusalem. But it does give you a foretaste. It does show you that God has begun an international work, an international work among the nations. And that's what the church is, the body of Christ. The mystery of the church is that we're one new man, both composed of Jew and Gentile in one under Jesus Christ. And this work that God is doing, building the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, for the coming kingdom to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a Gentile and Jewish work headed towards a universal kingdom with the Jewish Messiah ruling over Israel, over the nations. Father, we thank you for the unity of the scriptures, of this concept of your grace and favor on Ethiopia. Thank you for the miraculous deliverance of your people we read about in uh, that one night engagement of 185,000 Assyrians. Thank you that the historians and scholars have no answers besides what Isaiah wrote and the other prophets wrote concerning this work. And we thank you for the testimony, the evidence it gives in our lives. We are dealing with a sovereign God who is intimately associated with our history. Father, we want to see your works, and we ask just with the Apostle Paul, you open our eyes to see your great power. We know the power that you have toward us who believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.